Howdy. Before we begin today, we'd just like to say thanks for listening. Now, you may be asking yourself, what are some things that I can do to help you with your podcast? Because I love Texas. So here's some real easy things you can do. Number one, tell each and every person you know to listen to the show. Uh, spread the word, share the love. We love Texas and we want to share the love with you. Number two, you can go to patreon.com slash Texas podcast and you can financially support the show. And this is just where you sign up, you give us a few dollars every month and it just helps us to pay for some of the expenses and costs. Number three, you can go to iTunes and you can rate and review the show like our good friend WNTX did. And they said, for all Texans and Texas at heart, five stars. Having grown up in the shadow of the San Jacinto Monument, I thought I was well-versed in Texas history. But there is always more to the story. All topics are well-researched, and the biographical episodes are a must-listen. Well, there you go. You must go back and listen. So, everyone out there listening to the sound of our voices, we thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts. And you, uh, we love hearing from you, so let us know how we're doing. And get out there and spread the word. And without further ado... Here's the show. You, sir, are an unscrupled hog thief. Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. There is no single personality that dominates Texas history like Sam Houston. His contributions cannot be underestimated. Powerful and popular figures gain enemies, however, and the great Houston had many. Today we're taking a look at just a few of the men that stood in opposition to the George Washington of Texas. But first, what's your favorite Texas radio phrase that pays? <laughs> I'm going to say, oh, I'll just start. I'll say uh, 97-1, the Eagle Rock in Dallas, Texas. Um, riding, riding, riding with the Dorsey gang. <laughs> I don't know that it's technically a phrase that pays, but uh, I remember, ah, ah, ee, ee, ooh, ooh, tookie, tookie. The sound of the tookie bird on 93Q in Houston, Texas. The Q. I'm, the Q. <laughs> <laughs> Q zoo in the morning. <laughs> Sam Houston is rightfully considered the George Washington of Texas. His role in winning the Texas Revolution, in establishing the Republican state of Texas, and his part in shaping the character of the Lone Star State are without dispute. He was a magnetic, dynamic, brilliant force in the political world and in society. However, like any man, he made enemies uneasily. And as popular as he was, he wasn't universally loved by everyone. It is telling that the Republic of Texas had two parties, and they entirely centered around the dominating figure of Sam Houston. The parties were simply the Houstonites and the anti-Houstonites. For every James Collinsworth, Anson Jones, and James Pickney Henderson, there were men who opposed them in every way, largely because they opposed Houston himself. In many ways, the only thing all of these men had in common with General Sam was their love of Texas. This week, we look at three of the key anti-Houstonites, David Burnett, Mosley Baker, in Sidney Sherman. David G. Burnett has the distinction of having served first as president and later vice president of the Republic of Texas. Unlike many other men in this episode, Burnett was not a fiery young fighting man at the time of the revolution. He was born in New Jersey in 1788. 
he was the 14th child of Dr. William Burnett, a member of the Continental Congress during the Revolution and a Surgeon General in George Washington's army. His older brothers were similarly distinguished. His brother Jacob was a U.S. Senator and a Justice on the Ohio Supreme Court, while another brother was the mayor of Cincinnati. As a young man, David served as a clerk and later f- traveled to South America to fight with Simon Bolivar. He later studied law under his brother. In 1817, Burnett moved to Louisiana to set up a mercantile business, and somewhere along the line, he contracted tuberculosis. A doctor advised him to slip across the border into Spanish Texas to live in the dry air as a treatment for his condition. Seems to be pretty common of the day. He traveled alone and spent two years living with the Comanche after they came to his aid when his horse threw him while crossing the Colorado River. Burnett's condition improved, and he decided to return to Cincinnati. He practiced law in Ohio for a few years and wrote about his time with the Comanche, but he then decided to return to Texas when Stephen F. Austin's colony was founded in 1821. He settled in San Felipe where he set up a law practice and later tried to set up his own land grant in partnership with Lorenzo de Zavala. By the 1830s, he found himself disenchanted with the Mexican government. He lost a grant to a sawmill in 1832 when he refused to convert to Catholicism, which was Mexican law at the time. Initially, he supported Santa Ana's reforms and served as a judge in San Felipe for a time. But like most Texans, of course, this didn't last long. He was strongly in support of independence and rushed to the Convention of 1836, which was deliberating a Declaration of Independence, even though he wasn't actually an elected delegate. Somehow he managed, though, to talk the delegates into naming him interim president of the new republic, with Zavala as vice president. After the Alamo fell, Burnett chose to move the seat of government from Washington on the Brazos, which was 60 miles from the Mexican troops, to Harrisburg, near what is now Houston. While the move was a sound decision, given that Houston's army also began to retreat, it was so sudden that it incited panic among civilians, which triggered the runaway scrape. This infuriated Houston, who said that Burnett's actions were cowardly and caused unnecessary panic. Houston and Burnett, though they had been on the same side politically in the past, disliked each other intensely due to some business dealings gone sour. Burnett took criticism badly, and he himself accused Houston of being a coward. He even stationed a spy in Houston's army, James Perry, who started a rumor that Houston was not only drinking again, but also using opium. I guess that's where that scene in Texas Rising came from. It's possible. Yep. Hmm, here's this shred of rumor. Let's turn that into something dramatic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Burnett had to flee several times from advancing Mexican troops, which didn't make him look good when he rebuked Houston for retreating by saying, quote, the enemy are laughing at you with scorn. He also made no friends among his citizens by declaring martial law and issuing an executive order stripping citizenship of any Texan who refused to fight, fled the country, or aided the Mexican army. After the Battle of San Jacinto, Burnett continued to meddle with the army and with the disposition of Santa Ana. He negotiated the hugely unpopular Treaty of Alaska with Santa Ana, which paroled the Mexican dictator to the U.S., but public sentiment prevented him from fulfilling the terms of the treaty. He also refused to grant Houston permission to resign from the army to get his wounded ankle treated and almost charged him with desertion when Houston was finally able to leave. Burnett's trouble with the army continued as he and the New Republic were broke and unable to pay their soldiers. It got bad enough that the army grumbled about deposing Burnett and setting up a military dictatorship. But Thomas Rusk, the Secretary of War, returned to the army and settled him down. 
Houston returned and helped calm things down himself. Burnett declined to run for re-election as the first official president of the republic because the embittered public refused to support him. He pushed his new protege, Mirabeau Lamar, as a candidate, but Lamar could only garner enough support to win the vice presidency. Houston, who only entered the race a few weeks before the election, easily swept the vote. Burnett resigned shortly after the election and allowed Houston to take up his office. His law practice was ruined, and he had to take up subsistence farming. Burnett bitterly opposed Houston, and when Lamar ran for president in 1838, Burnett was able to get elected as vice president, mostly because the opposition died off right before the election. Literally. And we talked about that in our Collinsworth episode. The announcement of the election returns in Congress resulted in the climax of Burnett's feud with Houston. They got into a shouting match, with Burnett calling Houston a half-Indian and Houston calling Burnett a hog-thief. Burnett challenged Houston to a duel, which Houston refused, saying, quote, The people are equally disgusted with the both of us. <laughs> the, <laughs> the Lamar administration was a disaster for Texas in a lot of ways, and Burnett played his part. He presided over the Senate where Sam Houston and his supporters, who were in the majority, constantly fought every single measure that the Lamar administration supported. He was acting Secretary of State for a time, and he tried to negotiate a treaty for the removal of the Cherokee from Texas, I guess because his time with the Indians had given, given him some insight. Uh, unfortunately, that failed and things degenerated into fighting. He actually participated in the Battle of the Neches, which we talked about in our Cherokee episode. He even served as acting president in 1840 when Lamar went to the U.S. for medical treatment for a stomach ailment. His first action was to go to Congress and announce that Mexico was on the verge of invading. He called on Congress to declare war on Mexico immediately and to set the new Texas boundary south of the Rio Grande at the Sierra Madres. Houston and his supporters quickly shot down Burnett's proposal. It would be fair to say that Burnett probably overstepped his bounds in just about every way as acting president. He even managed to dismiss several of Lamar's appointees from the administration, which didn't exactly make Lamar happy when he returned. The anti-Houstonites kept Burnett on, though, since they needed some support within the government. When election time rolled around again, they couldn't find a decent candidate who would run against Houston, and Burnett became their man. It was a repeat of the 1838 election, with accusation and insults flying both ways. Houston played dirty, accusing Burnett of taking a bribe from Santa Ana, of being a hypocrite and a coward, and somewhat unfairly, kind of the raven calling the pot black, <laughs> of being a drunk. Burnett again challenged Houston to a duel, which Houston again refused. Houston won again, though not by as large a margin as he had before. Burnett returned home after the election, but he continued on and off in public service to Texas, serving as the first Secretary of State after annexation with the United States. His real passion, though, seemed to be continuing his feud with Sam Houston. He wrote a pamphlet that was published in 1852 that reprinted a lot of the previous rumors and scandals about Houston. In 1859, Houston got around to responding by insulting Burnett on the floor of the U.S. Senate. Burnett himself spent the next two decades sinking further and further into poor health and poverty. Shortly before the Civil War, Burnett's wife died, and he moved into the home of Sidney Sherman, another Houston opponent. Interestingly, like Houston, he also opposed secession, but, like Houston, supported the troops after his son, 
who later died in battle, joined the Confederate Army. Unlike Houston, Burnett would live to see the final outcome of the war. After the Civil War ended, Burnett continued to play a small part in Texas history. As an elder statesman of Texas politics, he was appointed by the newly reconstituted legislature to be one of Texas's two U.S. senators. Radical Republicans blocked him from taking his seat in the Senate, and soon afterwards the Texas legislature and its government were dissolved and a radical Reconstruction government was instituted. Burnett served as a delegate to the Democratic National Convention in 1868, but that was his last public service. Penniless and descending into senility, he briefly returned to family back east, but ultimately his love of Texas brought him back home. He died in December 1870 in Galveston, having outlived his great rival by seven years. Mosley Baker was another key opponent of Sam Houston, both during and after the Revolution. Baker was played in Texas Rising by the incomparable Crispin Glover. Baker was born in Virginia in 1802, but spent most of his life in Alabama. Much like fellow Alabaman William Barrett Travis, he studied law as a young man, but quickly decided to become a journalist and newspaper publisher. The newspaper he founded was the Planter's Gazette, and today is named the Montgomery Advertiser, as the largest daily newspaper in Alabama. So, good long history to that paper. He also got into politics, getting elected to the Alabama legislature at age 26, and he even served as the Speaker of the House. However, also in common with Travis, Mosley was ridiculously in debt, and in 1832, he was arrested for fraud. Like many men of his time, he escaped to Texas. He arrived in San Felipe with only a dollar in his pocket, and true to form, borrowed $10 from an acquaintance to set up his own law firm. When in doubt, if you're hungry, open a law firm. (laughs) (laughs) Baker eventually paid off his debt, but he remained a fugitive from Alabama justice. He moved his wife and daughter to Texas in 1835 and settled in the Zavala Grant on the east bank of Galveston Bay, just outside of present-day Houston. Almost as soon as he'd arrived, he'd been an advocate of Texas independence from Mexico. Baker later claimed that he was the first person in Texas to give a speech calling for independence, though if anyone, Hayden Edwards can probably claim that honor. In June, he was arrested, along with Travis and Zavala, for agitating revolution. He was elected to the Consultation of 1835, which was a last-ditch effort by leading Texans to settle their differences with Mexico, but he quickly called for the dissolution of the Consultation. Sam Houston sternly shot him down and said, quote, I had rather be a slave and grovel in the dust all my life than a convicted felon. Baker never forgot this humiliation and feuded with Houston for the rest of his life. Now, Baker was one of the first to fight, serving as a private at Gonzales, as well as in the battles in and around San Antonio, leading to its capture. In March 1836, he returned to the army that was being gathered by Houston and Gonzales as the siege of the Alamo was going on. He was elected a captain of the militia. As Houston's army retreated, Baker was adamant in his opposition to retreat. When they reached San Felipe on the Brazos, Baker and his men, most of whom lived in Austin's colony, refused to go further. Houston took his main force north to Gross's plantation and left Baker to guard the crossing at San Felipe. When Santa Ana finally did cross the Brazos, Baker burned Austin's old capital. In yet another point of contention between the two men, Baker said that it was on Houston's orders, but Houston denied ever issuing them. Baker later served with distinction at the Battle of San Jacinto, receiving a minor wound. 
He was also one of the many men who claimed to be the first to deliver the line, remember the Alamo, remember Goliad. Yes, I'm sure there are many people that claim to be the first ones. Yes. Probably, yeah. Not Creed Taylor, though, ironically. <laughs> <laughs> he was there. But yeah. I was there. I saw it. <laughs> yeah. After the war, Baker was one of the men who helped incorporate Texas's first railroad, the Texas Railroad Navigation and Banking Company. Surprised there's not a newspaper sandwiched in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. He was also elected to the first Congress of the Republic. In October 1836, Sam Houston was elected president of Texas, and Baker immediately threw everything he had into opposition. Baker submitted articles to impeach Houston for his actions during the war, and presumably because he was Sam Houston. The impeachment didn't go far since the charges were without merit. He later moved to Galveston, where Houston was especially unpopular. There was even a secret society which Mosley supported that had its sole purpose the goal of opposing Houston on a personal and political level. Man. Anti-Houstonites indeed. Yeah. I hate that Sam Houston. (laughs) Baker was in and out of Congress and the militia over the next few years. In 1844, Baker wrote an open letter to Houston that he tried without success to publish, and it accused him of all kinds of crimes, fraud, and malfeasance. Among the false accusations in the letter was that Jim Bowie claimed he stopped a drunk Houston from killing himself when the Texas volunteers refused to give up on their siege of San Antonio upon Houston's recommendation. Baker wrote that Houston was, quote, the greatest curse that Providence in its wrath could have sent upon the country. In the last years of his life, he took up preaching and got back into publishing a religious newspaper. He died in 1848 during the yellow fever outbreak in Houston. Now, why would he live in Houston? <laughs> the irony is, is irony. thick. <laughs> it's very thick. Yeah, that was, or was it, you know, he wanted to impeach Houston for his actions during the revolution when those very actions resulted in the winning of Texas independence. Yeah, exactly. He probably just called it Mosleyburg to all his friends. Sidney <laughs> yeah. Sherman was another opponent of Sam Houston. He was a young man for whom the news of the Battle of Gonzales was a call to action. He was a native of Massachusetts who had been orphaned at the age of 12. He raised himself up in life through hard work, and by 1835, he was 30 years old, and he owned a sheet metal company as well as a cotton bagging plant in northern Kentucky. He sold off his businesses and raised a company of 50 volunteers from Kentucky and Ohio, and he set off the Ohio River towards Texas. Sherman was presented with a silk flag painted with the image of the Spirit of Liberty by his new bride, Catherine. He and his men arrived in Texas in time for the Convention of 1836, which declared Texas's independence. And I read that they actually arrived the day before and demanded immediately to be allowed to vote. So <laughs> we're here and we're ready to vote. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have not been here before, but we demand a part in this new republic. So. At any rate, in March, they joined Sam Houston's army at Gonzales, and Sherman was made a colonel. He was given command of the 2nd Regiment of Texas Volunteers. During the retreat east, Sherman was given command of the cavalry, which basically was just mounted militia. He quickly became associated with the rest of the elements in the army that wanted to fight. They were tired of running. The day before the Battle of San Jacinto, Sherman asked for permission to raid Santa Ana's camp and capture his cannon, which had dueled with the twin sisters just that morning. General Houston refused, but gave him permission to reconnoiter the Mexican lines. He ordered Sherman not to engage. Just take a look. 
Charmin disregarded his orders and attacked a party of Mexican infantry that was taking a nap. The company ended up being Mexican dragoons, some of the best troops that Santa Ana had. Sherman's men were quickly outmatched. A timely counterattack by Texan infantry, who themselves were disobeying Houston's orders, saved Sherman's men. Houston restored order and gave Sherman a dressing down in front of the entire army. Sherman never forgave Houston for the humiliation and later accused the general of being a coward on that day. Still, the next day, Houston consented to allow Sherman to command the left wing of the battle. Ironically, the afternoon of the battle, Sherman, Lamar, and Baker had all voted to entice Santa Ana to attack their position, and Houston overruled them and ordered the attack. Of course, in common with Baker, Sherman later claimed he was the first to say, remember the Alamo before the battle. Well, memory's a funny thing. Yeah. <laughs> we did, they did say it, I'm sure. Um, somebody said it. Maybe they all said it at well, the same we time. We all kind of said it at the same time, we so were, I, I, I could be the first. We were all was, thinking it. We were all thinking <laughs> it. <laughs> After the Battle of San Jacinto, Sherman served on the court that divided up all the spoils of war. He tried to resign from the army after the war, citing illness, but Burnett refused to accept his resignation and appointed him to go back to the U.S. to recruit more troops. He returned in 1837 with his wife and family and settled not far from the San Jacinto battlefield. He served a term in the Republic's Congress, of course opposing Houston, and from 1843 to 1861 was the commander of the Texas militia. He also invested in businesses and a railroad, survived the explosion of a steamship, and had a sawmill, his home, and a hotel he lived in all burned down on him. But he didn't die. <laughs> Probably uh, because he wasn't. Inside. He actually he actually owned the entire town of Harrisburg at one point. Really, that's, that's really that's, impressive. Yeah, it's, he's an imp- now he's actually a very impressive individual. Yeah. Now, sadly, both of his sons, as well as his wife, died during the Civil War, and he spent the last years of his life living with his daughter. After his death, Sherman County and the Panhandle, as well as the town of Sherman, which is north of Dallas on the Red River, were named after him. The flag that he and his men left Kentucky with was the only banner carried into battle at San Jacinto, and today can be seen in the chamber of the Texas House of Representatives. So why why did these men dislike Houston so much? And naturally, politics is going to play a big part in it. Houston was a moderate in a lot of ways, and he had supported at least trying to settle with Mexico before the fighting started, which put him in conflict with the war party hardliners like Baker. Once independence was declared, he very quickly and publicly supported annexation to the United States as soon as possible, and this was something that many of his opponents opposed. They wanted to stay independent. Now, a big part of the opposition and the the conflict was also personal. Uh, Baker and certainly Burnett considered themselves to be Houston's political and social betters, and this added to their, their frustration. As we've said, Houston was a man who easily made enemies. He was blunt and brutal in his words, especially when his temper was up, and his temper was very, very short. Most of the men who opposed him were just as passionate and temperamental as Houston. In a lot of ways, Burnett was similar in temperament and had a cutting tongue, though he had little of Houston's charm or wit. It's ironic that those two, at least, were often very similar in mind on political issues. They may have agreed on a lot of the the bigger aspects, but their personal conflict got in the way. One of the things that came up was Houston's insistence on retreat during the runaway scrape had infuriated the hot-blooded young men. Uh, And Burnett was made 
to look really bad. I mean, he was the interim president. Baker had hated Houston since his insult at the consultation, and every action of Houston's from that point on just reinforced his loathing of the man. Similarly, Sidney Sherman never forgave Houston for the public dressing down that he'd gotten the day before San Jacinto. And finally, past business dealings gone wrong was one of the roots of dislike between Houston and Burnett. Societal intolerance also played a part. Houston's fall from grace in Tennessee wasn't much worse than what brought many other men to Texas, but his relationship with and sympathy for the Cherokee Indians set him very much apart. In fact, it was a point of contention even for those Texans who supported Houston otherwise. The unfortunate fact of the day was that there was a general intolerance and hatred for Native American tribes, and Lamar's deliberate policy of dismantling every advance Houston made to keep the peace with the Indians in Texas is key evidence of this. Even Thomas Rusk, who supported Houston often despite being friendly with Burnett and Lamar, broke with Houston over the Cherokee question, although they did reconcile years later before Rusk's suicide in 1857. All those things said, though, it should be noted that Houston could also be shrewd and charming when dealing with his opponents. Uh, There's kind of an interesting story that illustrates that. In the uh, ball to commemorate the uh, anniversary of the Battle of San Jacinto held in 1837, Sam Houston's escort was none other than Mosley Baker's wife, Eliza. Baker was unable to attend the ball, and Houston gallantly offered to escort the beautiful Mrs. Baker to the social event of the season. Obviously, it galled Baker to no end to be in debt to Houston. Yeah, so it's that's a great story of of what he could do uh, to make to, to kind of either to make things well or make things right, or just to get an extra dig in because he could be a really petty guy. <laughs> business is business and friendship is friendship and we all have to get along. But in the process, I'm going to do something that'll help you out, but it's really going to dig on you and you're yeah. going to hate me for it later. Yeah, exactly. It seems silly in the, in the retrospective of history to look back and say, you know, wow, these guys were petty and wow, they feuded so much, but um, it, it, it's incredible to see how deadlocked things were against Houston and the anti-Houstonites. I mean, and it doesn't, it's not hard to imagine looking at, you know, the political landscape in America today just to see like, oh, well, there's this brand new government. Everybody fought for this freedom and everybody's so happy to be here in Texas and nobody's happy. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the, the thing was, is the majority of the people were, supporters of Houston. So he, he, he did get a lot of things through just because he had a, a cache of support that, that existed, but there was people that were digging their heels in. And, and it's, it's interesting also that, that at the time, remember that there was no multiple political parties in the United States either. It was either Jacksonites or anti-Jacksonites and Jackson was his mentor. So he learned at the feet of the master of this type of polarizing political ideal idealism. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's interesting that most of the conflict seemed to stem from, you know, a conflict with Sam Houston's personality, right? Mm-hmm. It's like most of the guys, you know, aside from the, uh, you know, the retreat before Santa Ana, most of the other policies they seem to be aligned on, you know, they all wanted independence. Um, at least at first, they wanted it to be the Republic. And uh, it was really just certain things that they had sticking mm-hmm. points on. And overall, it was just a personality issue. Right. You know, the three of us have been friends a long time, but it's not, and you know, and we've had our disagreements over the years, but I've never been 
angry enough to want to go and like found a newspaper <laughs> and publish a book of, of, of fabricated lies. Well, I've never uh, called you a hog thief either, though. So. Oh, that's, well, I appreciate <laughs> not, that. Not to his face. Not to your face. You, sir, are an unscrupled hog thief. Well, and that's the thing about Houston is that he had the wit and, and, and brilliant mind that he could often turn the words of his opponents against them. And, and, uh, and Burnett didn't have that skill. He was he Houston could be blunt, but he could also be very witty and and sly. And Burnett did was just blunt. He just he just said things, and that was all he did. Well, but you know, still interesting that despite everything, you know, he he played a role in Texas, and he played a role mm-hmm. in Texas after the Civil War, and yeah. uh, you know, I think the. What I, I find interesting is, is you know, I, I've said it kind of jokingly in a lot of episodes is that, like, you know, why don't you just listen to Sam Houston because he's <laughs> almost certainly correct. Right. He's always right. Like, there's an argument in history, and then it turns out, well, Sam Houston totally had it right. And history's really, you know, supported him in that way. But I, I think it's interesting that these were – they were all very successful – interesting individuals and, yeah. and super passionate. Sidney Sherman's an amazing guy in terms of what he achieved of going from being an orphan to, you know, a very wealthy man yeah. who of a single mind crossed the country at this time just to be a participant in the Texas revolution. Yeah. And then he was standing on a ship that exploded and he lived. (laughs) (laughs) Spotted horse cannot be killed. (laughs) And he was a sickly man too. That's the funny thing is he kept having to like retire from what he was doing to like, because he was sickly, he he would get sick Mm -hmm. and go away. So we got this idea for this episode from Texas rising uh, because these three characters, uh, I forget who played Burnett, but the other two characters uh, in the army, Sherman and and Baker, were played quite prominently in uh, in the movie in the show. Uh, B- Baker was played by Crispin Glover, who we we all love, and uh, Sherman was played by Jonathan Skage, who was they and they were both really good uh, at, at the part. And there were some things that were like, "Was well, that real? Is that right?" And I think that's one of the things they got right was just how much these two men hated Sam Houston and Burnett as well, that they just they just could not stand the Sam Houston at all. So well, they yeah, got, the, that was one of the things that did get right. Well, definitely, definitely. And unlike so we, you know, uh, except for Sidney Sherman being uh, sickly because Jonathan Shade is yoked. He's in great <laughs> shape. Check out his Instagram. Well, they had they had enough shower scenes to see that. <laughs> Quite prominently yeah. in the show and set in 1836. Uh, so, no, I'm saying, and I think kind of what some, you know, it's interesting to delve into these uh, interactions between Sam Houston and his enemies because, you know, it's been said, and I think we've even said it on this show when we talked about Santa Ana, that the real, you know, the real measure of a man is the caliber of his enemies, right? To paraphrase the actual quote. And so to see that these men were so strongly opposed to Sam Houston. Um, just goes to show you how prominent mm-hmm. Sam Houston was. Yeah. Well, has history been kind to these individuals? Yes, it has. Um, Burnett was, when he left to visit his family, 
he received a letter from the people of Galveston showing their esteem for him. Um, they all have memorials for them at different places. They all have counties named after him and towns named after him. But on the flip side, there is there is no little irony in the fact that all three of them lived in Houston at one point <laughs> in the city of Houston. That, and that must have really burned them up. Yeah. And none of them have a gigantic statue uh out in the uh, out in the middle of the woods in, in on I forty five in the middle of the state yeah. of Texas. Yeah. Well, I think history has also been kind to them in the sense that yes, they were you know personally opposed to Houston in many ways, but they did all figure you know mm-hmm. prominently yes. in the Battle of San Jacinto and the the time leading up to and following that. Right. That's I mean, true. they all had important parts to play in the story of Texas. And so, before we close, one last thing we talked earlier about. Mosley Baker saying that claiming he was the person who first said, remember the Alamo, remember Goliad, and that we talked about Creed Taylor probably heard it. Well, in fact, Creed Taylor later did recall, quote, hearing Mosley Baker as he harangued his men in loud, unmistakable terms, the speech attracted the attention of General Houston as he rode up and down the lines and he halted and sat quietly on his horse, listening approvingly. Captain Baker told his men neither to ask for nor give quarter. This met with approval and a large red handkerchief was hoisted on a pole and carried into battle. So Creed Taylor did indeed hear him give this famous speech where he said, remember the Alamo, remember Goliath. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We need to hear from you. So like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or simply go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. You love this show. You love Texas. So get out there and do your duty. Tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes because that really helps us out to find new listeners just like you. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can go to patreon.com slash Texas podcast. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. <laughs>